Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Sam and this is Sidecar Stories and you're watching this from deep, deep in ancient history or I'm recording this far in the future. It's hard to tell. This is a re-recording and as such, today you're going to be hearing chapters 5 and 6 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I'm going to be revisiting this one and frankly it's a little hard to tell where exactly we are in the story because it's such a, an interesting little like pinpoint to end back up in. But with that said... um. Hopefully you can hear there are some differences now, and uh, well, if you want to catch back up in the future, right now we have just started Percy Jackson and the Olympians, specifically the Lightning Thief. Uh, that's right, we are done with this book and uh, this series, and as such, we're moving on to other things. Uh, the Hobbit is going great, so here's your little time capsule from the future. Here, that's sort of the stuff that you've got to look forward to as you continue your, uh, your ride with the sidecar. So, everyone, I really appreciate you being here. Today's obviously going to be a little light on the discussion because I'm not live streaming this. There's nobody here to talk to about it. And as such, I think let's just get into a review and then the chapter, shall we? So chapters three and four. Chapter three, the advanced guard and chapter four, number 12, Grimald Place. Now, number three is an interesting chapter. Harry is locked up at home, essentially. Uh, he is at the Dursleys, and he has been ordered not to go out anywhere because the Dursleys aren't going to go on a trip. They're leaving the house. And while they are gone, suddenly there are wizards in the kitchen. Wizards, witches, all sorts of folks. Um, and uh, it appears to include Professor Moody, Professor Lupin, um, and not only that, but some folks that Harry doesn't even recognize. We made a fabulous new witch named Tonks, Nymphadora Tonks. Um, she hates that name. She goes by Tonks. And she is uh, someone who can shapeshift very slightly uh, or sometimes a decent bit. All of these new folks are here to help get Harry from one place to another. Point A to point B. Point A is, of course, the Dursley's house. But point B is a bit of a mystery. They've ended up in London. Kind of like, not downtown, downtown London, but a relatively, you know, urban area compared to a lot of where we've spent time thus far. And they head up to this row house. Moody hands Harry a slip of paper and says, read quickly and memorize. And the paper says, the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix may be found at number 12 Grimald Place, London. And then we move on to chapter four, number 12, Grimald Place. Harry asks immediately, what's the order of the, and, and, and Moody shushes him down. Um, apparently, this ain't the moment, but something very interesting happens. In front of him, the spaces between the houses get wider and wider. And then one specific space opens up and up and up, and it becomes an extra house that Harry couldn't see before he read this little slip of parchment. And as it does so, um, we reveal number 12, Grimald Place. This is the new headquarters of something called the Order of the Phoenix. And as they head inside, Harry realizes it's protected with enchantments. Um, he has got, uh, you know, obviously his friends that came and retrieved him are around him. But then he hears more voices. It's an odd feeling of foreboding as they enter. But surprise, who's here? It's Mrs. Weasley. Uh, and not just Mrs. Weasley, but a number of Harry's other friends as well. Uh, Ron and Hermione. And after all of the time that Harry has spent at the Dursleys wondering what is going on. Hey, some big things are happening in my life here and I need some kind of contact. Nobody will tell him anything. 
and now he's finally here. It doesn't seem that necessarily he's going to get all his questions answered yet. With all these questions, Ron and Hermione are only able to offer the barest of answers, and Harry loses his temper. He is shouting about, you know, how they're complaining they haven't been in the meetings. They don't really feel like they know what's going on, going on. Harry has been totally disconnected. He has sent letters that nobody's responded to. He is, he is really, really ticked off that, you know, he's been through so much. He has gotten past dragons and sphinxes and, and so many things, and yet nobody will tell him what's happening. Ron and Hermione are on their guard now, sort of, sort of, they're defensive now, and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of panicking to see Harry like this, but Harry is absolutely furious. Uh, they don't really know what's going on. Fred and George have invented these things called extendable ears, which allow them to sort of, you know, listen in. Uh, it's like a, it's like a, um, a listening bug on a string. Um, and essentially, they've picked up just little bits and pieces. There are lots of people meeting in this house, People like uh, 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 the Weasley's older siblings, Lupin, Tonks, uh, even Dumbledore. And, you know, we are seeing a lot about what has been happening with them, but we don't really have answers. We find that, unfortunately, Percy has left the Weasley family and is now living elsewhere, somewhere here in London. There's a bit of a rift because Percy believes that they are sort of supporting the wrong side. Percy is very ministry-focused. The newspapers don't seem to have much to say about Harry's uh, tribulations, Harry's troubles. They seem to be keeping it fairly quiet, unfortunately, because it shouldn't be kept quiet. The most surprising member of this group, however, has got to be Snape. Severus Snape is here, and he appears to be a member of the Order of the Phoenix. And although we don't know everything about the Order of the Phoenix, we know that they are dedicated to fighting Voldemort. Dedicated to organizing and getting collected and talking tactics and operations and actively working against Voldemort and his rise. And then finally, we managed to see someone that Harry has wanted to see for a long time. Sirius Black. Sirius Black is here, and in the final reveal of this, as Sirius tries to shut up this portrait of this old woman on screaming on the wall, he reveals that, well, that's my mother, and thereby this must be his house. That's what we learn in our previous chapters. Let's get into today's chapters. For anyone who's wondering, um, you can go ahead and share now this link right here. There we go. This link right here, this is the perfect one to share about the show, and it's the best thing you can do to help me out, um, sharing this link around. It is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e slash sidecar stories, linktree slash sidecar stories. That is the best spot to go, and it's the best spot to have new people show up. So go ahead and check that out, and hopefully, you know, we can get some more people riding the sidecar with us. Let's see about our chapters for the day. Chapter 5, The Order of the Phoenix. Your... My dear old mom. Yeah, said Sirius. We've been trying to get her down for a month, but we think she put a permanent sticking charm on the back of the canvas. Let's get downstairs quick, before they all wake up again. What's a portrait of your mother doing here? 
Harry asked, bewildered as they went down through the door from the hall that led down the long flight of narrow stone steps with the others just behind them. What hasn't anybody told you? This was my parents' house, said Sirius. But I'm the last black left, so it's mine now. I offered it to Dumbledore for headquarters. It's about the only useful thing I've been able to do. Harry, who had expected a better welcome, noted how hard and bitter Sirius's voice sounded. He followed his godfather to the bottom of the steps and through a door leading into the basement kitchen. It was scarcely less gloomy than the hall above, a cavernous room with rough stone walls. Most of the light was coming from a large fire at the far end of the room. A haze of pipe smoke hung in the air like battle fumes, through which loomed the menacing shapes of heavy iron pots and pans hanging from the dark ceiling. Many chairs had been crammed into the room for the meeting, and a long wooden table stood in the middle of them, littered with rolls of parchment, goblets, empty wine bottles, and a heap of what appeared to be rags. Mr. Weasley and his eldest son, Bill, were talking quietly, with their heads together, at the end of the table. Mrs. Weasley cleared her throat. Her husband, a thin, balding, red-haired man who wore horn-rimmed glasses, looked around and jumped to his feet. "'Oh, Harry!' Mr. Weasley said, hurrying forward to meet him and shaking his hand vigorously. "'It's good to see you!' Over his shoulder, Harry saw Bill, who still wore his long hair and a ponytail, hastily rolling up the lengths of parchment left on the table. "'Journey all right, Harry?' Bill called, trying to gather up twelve scrolls at once. Mad I didn't make you come via Greenland, then. He tried, said Tonks, striding over to help Bill and immediately toppling a candle on the last piece of parchment. Oh, oh no, sorry. Here, dear, Mrs. Weasley said, sounding exasperated, and she repaired the parchment with a wave of her wand. In the flash of light caused by Mrs. Weasley's charm, Harry caught a glimpse of what looked like the plan of a building. Mrs. Weasley had seen him looking. She snatched the plan off the table and stuffed it into Bill's already overladen arms. This sort of thing ought to be cleared away promptly at the end of meetings, she snapped, before sweeping off toward an ancient dresser, from which she started unloading dinner plates. Bill took out his wand, muttered, Evanesco, and the scrolls vanished. Sit down, Harry, said Sirius. You've met Mundungus, haven't you? The thing Harry had taken to be a pile of rags gave a prolonged grunting snore and then jerked awake. Somebody say my name, Mundungus muttered sleepily. I agree with Sirius. He raised a very grubby hand in the air as though voting, his droopy bloodshot eyes unfocused. Ginny giggled. The meeting's over, Dung said Sirius, and they all sat down around him at the table. Harry's arrived. Huh? said Mundungus, peering balefully at Harry through his matted ginger hair. Oh, blimey, so he has. Yeah. Uh, do all right, Harry. Yes, said Harry. Mundungus fumbled nervously in his pockets, still staring at Harry, and pulled out a grimy black pipe. He stuck it in his mouth ignited the end of it, and took a deep pull on it. Great billowing clouds of greenish smoke obscured him within seconds. Oh, your apology, 
grunted the voice from the middle of the smelly cloud. "'For the last time, Mundungus,' called Mrs. Weasley, "'will you please not smoke that thing in the kitchen, "'especially not when we're about to eat?' Mm, "'Yeah,' said Mundungus. "'Right, uh, sorry, Molly.' The cloud of smoke vanished as Mundungus stowed his pipe back in his pocket, but the acrid smell of burning socks lingered. "'And if you want dinner before midnight, I'll need a hand,' Mrs. Weasley said to the room at large. "'No, you can stay where you are, Harry dear. You've had a long journey.' "'What can I do, Molly?' said Tonks enthusiastically, bounding forward. Mrs. Weasley hesitated, looking apprehensive. Um, "'No, it's, it's all right, Tonks. You have a rest too. You've done enough today.' "'No, no, I want to help.' said Tonks brightly, knocking over a chair as she hurried toward the dresser from which Ginny was collecting cutlery. Soon a series of heavy knives were chopping meat and vegetables of their own accord, supervised by Mr. Weasley, while Mrs. Weasley stirred a cauldron dangling over the fire, and the others took out plates, more goblets, and food from the pantry. Harry was left at the table with Sirius and Mundungus, who was still blinking at him mournfully. You, uh... You seen old Figgy since? He asked. No, said Harry. I haven't seen anyone. You see, I, I, um, I wouldn't have left, said Mundungus, leaning forward, a pleading note in his voice. But I had a, um, a business opportunity. Harry felt something brush against his knees and started, but it was only Crookshanks. Hermione's bandy-legged ginger cat, who wound himself around Harry's leg, purring, and then jumped onto Sirius's lap and curled up. Sirius scratched him absentmindedly behind the ears as he turned, still grim-faced, to Harry. You had a good summer so far. Nope, it's been lousy, said Harry. For the first time, something like a grin flitted across Sirius's face. I don't know what you're complaining about myself. What? said Harry incredulously. Personally, I'd have welcomed a Dementor attack. A deadly struggle for my soul would have broken the monotony nicely. You think you've had it bad, at least you've been able to get out and about. Stretch your legs, get in a few fights. I've been stuck inside for a month. How come? asked Harry, frowning. Because the Ministry of Magic is still after me. And Voldemort will know all about me, being an animagus by now. Wormtail will have told them, so my big disguise is useless. Not much I can do for the Order of the Phoenix. Or so Dumbledore feels. There was something about the slightly flattened tone of voice in which Sirius uttered Dumbledore's name that told Harry Sirius, too, was not very happy with the headmaster. Harry felt a sudden upsurge of affection for his godfather. "'At least you've known what's been going on,' he said bracingly. "'Oh, yeah,' said Sirius sarcastically. Yeah, "'Listening to Snape's reports, having to take all his snide hints that he's out there risking his life while I'm on my backside here, having a nice, comfortable time, asking me how the cleaning's going.' "'What cleaning?' asked Harry." Trying to make this place fit for human habitation, said Sirius, waving a hand around the dismal kitchen. No one's lived here in ten years. Not since my mother died, unless you count her old house elf. 
And he's gone around the twist. Hasn't cleaned anything in ages. He's serious, said Mundungus, who did not appear to have paid any attention to the conversation, but had been closely examining an empty goblet. Is this, um, is this solid silver, mate? Yes, said Sirius, surveying it with distaste. Finest 15th century goblin wrought silver, embossed with the black family crest. Yeah, that'd come off, though, muttered Mundungus, polishing it with his cuff. Fred, George, no, just carry them! Mrs. Weasley shrieked. Harry, Sirius, Mundungus looked around, and a split second later they dived away from the table. Fred and George had bewitched a large cauldron of stew, an iron flagon of butterbeer, and a heavy wooden breadboard, complete with knife, to hurtle through the air toward them. The stew skidded the length of the table and came to a halt just before the end, leaving a long black burn on the wooden surface. The flagon of butterbeer fell with a crash, spilling its contents everywhere. The bread knife slipped off the board and landed point down and quivering ominously, exactly where Sirius's right hand had been seconds before. For heaven's sake, screamed Mrs. Weasley, there was no need. I've had enough of this. Just because you're allowed to use magic now, you don't have to whip out your wands for every tiny little thing. We were just trying to save a bit of time, said Fred, hurrying forward to wrench the bread knife out of the table. Sorry, Sirius, mate. Didn't mean to. Harry and Sirius were both laughing. Mundungus, who had toppled backwards off his chair, was swearing as he got to his feet. Kirkshanks had given an angry hiss and shot off onto the dresser, where his large yellow eyes glowed in the darkness. Boys! Mr. Weasley said, lifting the stew back into the middle of the table. Your mother's right. You're supposed to show a sense of responsibility, now that you've come of age. None of your brothers caused this kind of trouble! Mrs. Weasley raged at the twins as she slammed a fresh flagon of butterbeer onto the table, and spilling almost as much again. Bill didn't feel the need to operate every few feet. Charlie didn't charm everything that he met. Percy... She stopped dead, catching her breath with a frightened look at her husband, whose expression was suddenly wooden. Let's eat, said Bill quickly. It looks wonderful, Molly, said Lupin, ladling stew onto a plate for her and handing it across the table. For a few minutes, there was silence, but for the drink of plates and cutlery and the scraping of chairs as everyone settled down to their food. Then Mrs. Weasley turned to Sirius. I've been meaning to tell you, Sirius, there's something trapped in that writing desk in the drawing room. It keeps rattling and shaking. Of course, it, it, it could just be a bug art, but I thought we ought to ask Alistair to have a look at it before we let it out. Yeah, whatever you like, said Sirius indifferently. The curtains are full of doxies, too, Mrs. Weasley went on. I thought we might try and tackle them tomorrow. I look forward to it, said Sirius. Harry heard the sarcasm in his voice, but he was not sure that anyone else had. Opposite Harry, Tonks was entertaining Hermione and Ginny by transforming her nose between mouthfuls. 
screwing up her eyes each time with the same pained expression she had worn back in Harry's bedroom. Her nose swelled to a beak-like protuberance that resembled Snape's, shrank down to the size of a button mushroom, and then sprouted a great deal of hair from each nostril. Apparently this was a regular mealtime entertainment because Hermione and Ginny were soon requesting their favorite noses. Oh, do, do unlock a pig snout, Tonks. Tonks obliged, and Harry, looking up, had the fleeting impression that a female Dudley was grinning at him from across the table. Mr. Weasley, Bill, and Lupin were having an intense discussion about goblins. They're not giving anything away yet, said Bill. I still can't work out whether they believe that he's back or not. Of course, they might prefer not to take sides at all. Keep out of it. I'm sure they would never go over to you-know-who, Mr. Weasley said, shaking his head. They've suffered losses too. You remember that goblin family that he murdered last time, somewhere near Nottingham? I think it depends on what they're offered, said Lupin, and I'm not talking about gold. If they're offered the freedoms that we've been denying them for centuries, they're going to be tempted. Have you still not had any luck with Ragnarok, Bill? He's feeling pretty anti-wizard at the moment, said Bill. He hasn't stopped raging about the bagman business. He reckons that the Ministry did a cover-up. Those goblins never got their gold from him, you know. A gale of laughter from the middle of the table drowned the rest of Bill's words. Fred, George, Ron, and Mundungus were rolling around in their seats. Man, man, <laughs> choked Mundungus, tears running down his face. Man, <laughs> if you believe it, he says to me, he says, here, Dung, where'd you get all them toads from? Because some son of a bludger's gone and nicked all of mine. <laughs> and I says, and I says, nicked all your toads? Well, what next? Will you be wanting some more then? And you believe me, Lazarus Gormless Gargoyle buys all his own toads off, off of me for a lot more than what he paid for him in the first place. <laughs> I don't think we need to hear any more of your business dealings. Thank you very much, Bundungus, said Mrs. Weasley sharply, as Ron slumped forward onto the table, howling with laughter. <laughs> I beg your, beg your pardon, Molly. <laughs> said Mundungus at once, wiping his eyes and winking at Harry. Well, you know, <laughs> Will nicked him off Wardy Harris in the first place, so I wasn't really doing nothing wrong. I don't know where you've learned about right and wrong, Mundungus, but you seem to have missed a few crucial lessons, said Mrs. Weasley coldly. Fred and George buried their faces in their goblets of butterbeer. George was hiccuping. For some reason, Mrs. Weasley threw a very nasty look at Sirius before getting to her feet and going to fetch a large rhubarb crumble for pudding. Harry looked round at his godfather. Molly doesn't approve of Mundungus, said Sirius in an undertone. How come he's in the order? Harry said very quietly. Well, he's useful, Sirius muttered. Those are the crooks. Well, he would, seeing as he is one himself, but he's also very loyal to Dumbledore, who helped him get out of a tight spot once. It pays to have someone like Dung around. He hears things that we don't, but Molly thinks inviting him to stay for dinner is going too far. She still hasn't forgiven him for slipping off duty when he was supposed to be tailing you. 
Three helpings of rhubarb crumble and custard later, and the waistband on Harry's jeans was feeling uncomfortably tight, which was saying something as the jeans had once been Dudley's. As he laid down his spoon, there was a lull in the general conversation. Mr. Weasley was leaning back in his chair, looking replete and relaxed. Tonks was yawning widely, her nose now back to normal, and Ginny, who had lured Crookshanks out from under the dresser, was sitting cross-legged on the floor, rolling butterbeer corks for him to chase. It's nearly time for bed, I think, said Mrs. Weasley with a yawn. Um, not just yet, Molly, said Sirius, pushing away his empty plate and turning to look at Harry. You know, I'm surprised at you. I thought the first thing you'd do when you got here would be to start asking questions about Voldemort. The atmosphere in the room changed with the rapidity Harry associated with the arrival of Dementors. Where seconds before it had been sleepily relaxed, it was now alert, even tense. A frisson had gone around the table at the mention of Voldemort's name. Lupin, who had been about to take a sip of wine, lowered his goblet slowly, looking wary. I did, said Harry indignantly. I asked Ron and Hermione, but they said that we're not allowed in the order, so... And they're quite right, said Mrs. Weasley. You're too young. She was sitting bolt upright in her chair, her fists clenched on its arms, every trace of drowsiness gone. Since when did someone have to be in the Order of the Phoenix to ask questions? asked Sirius. Harry's been trapped in that muggle house for a month. He's got a right to know what's been hap- Hang on, interrupted George loudly. How come Harry gets his answers first? said Fred angrily. We've been trying to get stuff out to you for a month. You haven't told us a single stinking thing. You're too young, you're not in the order, said Fred in a high-pitched voice that sounded uncannily like his mother's. Harry's not even of age. It's not my fault you haven't been told what the order's doing, said Sirius calmly. That's your parents' decision. Harry, on the other hand. It's not down to you to decide what's good for Harry, said Mrs. Weasley sharply. Expression on her normally kind face looked dangerous. You haven't forgotten what Dumbledore said, I suppose. Which bit? Sirius said politely, but with the air of a man readying himself for a fight. The bit about not telling Harry more than he needs to know, said Mrs. Weasley, placing a heavy emphasis on the last three words. Ron, Hermione, Fred, and George's head swiveled from Sirius to Mrs. Weasley as though they were following a tennis rally. Ginny was kneeling amid a pile of abandoned butterbeer corks, watching the conversation with her mouth slightly open. Lupin's eyes were fixed on Sirius. I don't intend to tell him more than he needs to know, Molly, said Sirius. But as he was the one who saw Voldemort come back... Again, there was a collective shudder around the table at the name. He's got more right than most to... He's not a member of the Order of the Phoenix, said Mrs. Weasley. He's only fifteen and... And he's dealt with as much as most in the Order, said Sirius. And more than some. No one's denying what he's done, said Mrs. Weasley, her voice rising, her fists trembling on the arms of her chair. But he's still... He's not a child, said Sirius impatiently. He's not an adult either said Mrs. Weasley, the colour rising in her cheeks. He's not James, Sirius. I'm perfectly clear who he is, 
Thanks, Molly, said Sirius coldly. I'm not sure that you are, said Mrs. Weasley. Sometimes the way that you talk about him, it's as though you think you got your best friend back. What's wrong with that? said Harry. What's wrong, Harry, is that you are not your father. However much you might look like him, said Mrs. Weasley, her eyes still boring into Sirius. You're still at school, and adults that are responsible for you should not forget it. Meaning I'm an irresponsible godfather, demanded Sirius, his voice rising. Meaning that you have been known to act rashly, Sirius, which is why Dumbledore keeps reminding you to stay at home and... We'll leave my instructions from Dumbledore out of this, if you please, said Sirius loudly. Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley, rounding on her husband. Arthur, back me up. Mr. Weasley did not speak at once. He took off his glasses and cleaned them slowly on his robes, not looking at his wife. Only when he had replaced them carefully on his nose did he reply, Dumbledore knows that the position has changed, Molly. He accepts that Harry will have to be filled in to a certain extent now that he's staying at the headquarters. Yes, but there's a difference between between that and inviting him to ask whatever he likes. Personally, said Lupin quietly, looking away from Sirius at last as Mrs. Weasley turned quickly to him, hopeful that finally she was about to get an ally. I think it better that Harry gets the facts. Not all the facts, Molly, but the general picture from us, rather than a garbled version from others. His expression was mild, but Harry felt sure that Lupin, at least, knew that some extendable ears had survived Mrs. Weasley's purge. Well, said Mrs. Weasley, breathing deeply and looking around the table for support that did not come. Well, I can see that I'm going to be overruled. I'll just say this. Dumbledore must have had his reasons for not wanting Harry to know too much, and speaking as someone who has Harry's best interest at heart. He's not your son. He's as good as, said Mrs. Weasley fiercely. Who else has he got? He's got me. Yes, said Mrs. Weasley, her lip curling. The thing is, it's been rather difficult for you to look after him as you've been locked up in Azkaban, hasn't it? Sirius started to rise from his chair. Molly. Dang it. Molly, you're not the only person at this table who cares about Harry, said Lupin sharply. Sirius, sit down. Mrs. Weasley's lower lip was trembling. Sirius sank slowly back into his chair, his face white. I think Harry ought to be allowed a say in this, Lupin continued. He's old enough to decide for himself. I want to know what's going on, Harry said at once. He did not look at Mrs. Weasley. He had been touched by what she had said about his being as good as a son, but he was also impatient with her mollycoddling. Sirius was right. He was not a child. Very well, said Mrs. Weasley, her voice cracking. Ginny, Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, I want you out of this kitchen now. There was an instant uproar. We're of age, Fred and George bellowed together. If Harry's allowed, why can't I? 
shouted Ron. Mum, I want to hear, wailed Ginny. No, shouted Mrs. Weasley, standing up, her eyes over bright. I absolutely forbid. Molly, you can't stop Fred and George, said Mr. Weasley wearily. They are of age. But they're still at school. They're legally adults now, said Mr. Weasley in the same tired voice. Mrs. Weasley was now scarlet in the face. Oh, all right then, Fred and George can stay, but Ron... Harry'll tell me and Hermione everything you say anyway, said Ron hotly. Won't, won't you? He added uncertainly, meeting Harry's eyes. For a split second, Harry considered telling Ron that he wouldn't tell him a single word, that he could try a taste of being kept in the dark and see how he liked it. But the nasty impulse vanished as they looked at each other. Of course I will, said Harry. Ron and Hermione beamed. Fine, shouted Mrs. Weasley. Fine, Ginny, bed. Ginny did not go quietly. They could hear her raging and storming at her mother all the way up the stairs, and when she reached the hall, Mrs. Black's ear-splitting shrieks were added to the din. Lupin hurried off to the portrait to restore calm. It was only after he had returned, closing the kitchen door behind him and taking his seat at the table again, that Sirius spoke. Okay, Harry. What do you want to know? Harry took a deep breath and asked the question he had obsessed over for the last month. Where's Voldemort? He said, ignoring the renewed shudders and winces at the name. What's he doing? I've been trying to watch the Muggle news and there hasn't been anything that looks like him yet. No funny deaths or anything. That's because there haven't been any funny deaths yet, said Sirius. Not as far as we know, anyway. And we know quite a lot. More than he thinks we do, anyway, said Lupin. How come he stopped killing people? Harry asked. He knew Voldemort had murdered more than once in the last year alone. Because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself, said Sirius. It could be dangerous for him. His comeback didn't come off quite the way that he wanted it to, see. He messed it up. Or rather... You messed it up for him, said Lupin with a satisfied smile. How? Harry asked, perplexed. You weren't supposed to survive, said Sirius. Nobody apart from his Death Eaters was supposed to know that he'd come back, but you survived to bear witness. And the very last person he wanted alerted to his return the moment that he got back was Dumbledore, said Lupin. And you made sure that Dumbledore knew at once. How has that helped? Harry asked. Are you kidding? said Bill incredulously. Dumbledore was the only one that you know who was ever scared of. Thanks to you, Dumbledore was able to recall the Order of the Phoenix about an hour after Voldemort returned, said Sirius. So what has the Order been doing? asked Harry, looking around at them all. Working as hard as we can to make sure Voldemort can't carry out his plans said Sirius. How do you know what his plans are? Uh, Dumbledore's got a pretty shrewd idea, said Lupin, and Dumbledore's shrewd ideas normally turn out to be accurate. So what does Dumbledore reckon that he's planning? Well, firstly, he wants to build up his army again, 
said Sirius. In the old days, he had huge numbers at his command. Witches and wizards he bullied or bewitched into following him. His faithful Death Eaters, a great variety of dark creatures. You heard him planning to recruit the Giants. Well, they'll be just one of the groups that he's after. He's certainly not going to try and take on the Ministry of Magic with only a dozen Death Eaters. So, you're trying to stop him getting more followers? We're doing our best, said Lupin. How? Well, the main thing is to try and convince as many people as possible that you-know-who really has returned to put them on their guard, said Bill. It's proven tricky, though. Why? Because of the Ministry's attitude, said Tonks. You saw Cornelius Fudge after you-know-who came back, Harry. But he hasn't shifted his position at all. He's absolutely refusing to believe that it's happened. But why? said Harry desperately. Why is he being so stupid if Dumbledore... Ah, uh, well, you've put your finger on the problem, said Mr. Weasley with a wry smile. Dumbledore. Fudge is afraid of him, you see, said Tonks sadly. Frightened of Dumbledore, said Harry incredulously. Frightened of what he's up to, said Mr. Weasley. Fudge thinks that Dumbledore is plotting to overthrow him. He thinks that Dumbledore wants to be Minister for Magic. But Dumbledore doesn't want to... Of course he doesn't, said Mr. Weasley. He's never wanted the Minister's job, even though lots of people wanted him to take it when Millicent Bagnold retired. Fudge came to power instead, but he's ever quite forgotten how much popular support Dumbledore had, even though Dumbledore's never applied for the job. Deep down... Fudge knows Dumbledore is much cleverer than he is, a much more powerful wizard, and in the early days of his ministry he was forever asking Dumbledore for help and advice, said Lupin. But it seems he has become fond of power, and much more confident. He loves being Minister for Magic, and he's managed to convince himself that he's the clever one and Dumbledore's simply stirring up trouble for the sake of it. How can he think that? said Harry angrily. How can he think that Dumbledore would just make it all up? That I would just make it all up? Because accepting that Voldemort's back would mean trouble like the Ministry hasn't had to cope with for nearly fourteen years, said Sirius bitterly. Fudge just can't bring himself to face it. It's so much more comfortable to convince himself Dumbledore is lying to destabilize him. You can see the problem, said Lupin. While the Ministry insists that there's nothing to fear from Voldemort, it's hard to convince people that he's back, especially as they don't really want to believe it in the first place. What's more, the Ministry leaning heavily on the Daily Prophet, not to report any of what they're calling Dumbledore's rumour-mongering. So most of the wizarding community are completely unaware of the things that have happened, and that makes them easy targets for Death Eaters if they're using the Imperious Curse. But you're telling people, aren't you? said Harry, looking around at Mr. Weasley, Sirius, Bill, Mundungus, Lupin, and Tonks. You're telling people that he's back! They all smiled humorlessly. 
Well, as everyone thinks I'm a mad mass murderer and the ministry's put a 10,000 galleon price on my head, I can hardly stroll up the street and start handing out leaflets, can I? And I'm not a very popular dinner guest with most of the community, said Lupin. It's an occupational hazard of being a werewolf. Tonks and Arthur would lose their jobs at the ministry if they started shooting their mouths off, said Sirius. And it is very important for us to have spies inside the ministry, because you can bet Voldemort will have them. We've managed to convince a couple of people, though, said Mr. Weasley. Tonks here, for one. She's too young to have been in the Order of the Phoenix last time, and having orders on our side is a huge advantage. Kingsley Shacklebolt has been a real asset, too. He's in charge of the hunt for Sirius, so he's been feeding the Ministry information that Sirius is in Tibet. But if none of you are putting out the news that Voldemort is back, Harry began. Who said none of us are putting the news out? said Sirius. Why do you think Dumbledore's in such trouble? What do you mean? They're trying to discredit him, said Lupin. Didn't you see the Daily Prophet last week? They reported that he'd been voted out of the chairmanship for the International Confederation of Wizards because he's getting old and losing his grip. That's not true. He was voted out by Ministry Wizards after he made a speech announcing Voldemort's return. They've demoted him from Chief Warlock on the Wizard Gamut, that's the Wizard High Court, and they're talking about taking away his Order of Merlin, first class, too. But Dumbledore says he doesn't care what they do, as long as they don't take him off the chocolate frog carts, said Bill, grinning. It's no laughing matter, said Mr. Weasley sharply. If he carries on defying the Ministry like this, he could end up in Azkaban. And the last thing that we want is for Dumbledore to be locked up. Well, you know who knows that Dumbledore's out there and wise to what he's got going on. He'll go cautiously. If Dumbledore's out of the way, well, you know who will have a clear field. But if Voldemort's trying to recruit more Death Eaters, it's bound to get out that he's come back, isn't it? Asked Harry desperately. Voldemort doesn't just march up to people's houses and bang on their front doors, Harry, said Sirius. He tricks, jinxes, and blackmails them. He's well practiced at operating in secret. In any case, gathering followers is only one thing that he's interested in. He's got other plans, too. Plans he can put into operation very quietly indeed. And he's concentrating on those for the moment. What's he after apart from followers? Harry asked swiftly. He thought he saw Sirius and Lupin exchange the most fleeting of looks before Sirius answered. Stuff you can only get by stealth. When Harry continued to look puzzled, Sirius said, Like a weapon. Something he didn't have last time. When he was powerful before? Yes. What kind of weapon? said Harry. Something worse than Avada Kedavra? That's enough! Mrs. Weasley spoke from the shadows beside the door. Harry hadn't noticed her return from taking Ginny upstairs. Her arms were crossed, and she looked furious. I want all of you in bed. All of you, right now, she added, looking around at Fred, George, Ron, and Hermione. 
You can't boss us, Fred began. Watch me, snarled Mrs. Weasley. She was trembling slightly as she looked at Sirius. You've given Addy plenty of information. Any more, and you might as well induct him into the order straight away. Why not, said Harry quickly. I want to join in. I I want to fight. Why not, said Harry quickly. I'll join. I I want to join. I want to fight. No. It was not Mrs. Weasley who spoke this time, but Lupin. The order is comprised only of overage wizards, he said. Wizards who have left school, he added, as Fred and George opened their mouths. There are dangers involved of which you have no idea, any of you. I think Molly's right, Sirius. We've said enough. Sirius half-shrugged, but did not argue. Mrs. Weasley beckoned imperiously to her sons and Hermione. One by one, they stood up, and Harry, recognizing defeat, followed suit. That is the end of our first chapter for the evening. Because we've done it like this, I don't see a great need for a for uh, another bit of review, but I will just leave a question in your minds, right? We've got Harry, just desperate for any information. I want you to try and consider the impact that this has had on Harry and what this means for his character. Unfortunately, we had an excellent discussion of um, a- after this, after our two chapters for today. Um, back when we, or- when we originally read this, we had an excellent discussion about the the character of Harry himself and what some of his flaws are, because they're starting to show up more in these chapters. This this flaw of this this kind of unpent rage. Um, he has, you know, in in the previous chapters, he had, you know, kind of uh, unleashed that on Ron and Hermione a bit, which was totally inappropriate, considering, uh, you know, obviously this is one of the things that we talk about a lot here on Sidecar Stories, which is understanding without condoning. So let's try to understand Harry without condoning what he's done. We don't condone the idea, so we don't support this idea that Harry was right in blowing up at Ron and Hermione, but we can try to understand it, right? We can try to understand why Harry is in this position. Before we move into our next chapter, I'm going to go grab some water, but I do think that it's important to remember how Harry has lived his life up until this point. Consider the ways in which Harry's year revolves, right? He spends all this time at this school at this totally new world immersed in it he is surrounded by magic and and newness and people who consider him important right and then he goes home and it is home for harry because it's the place that he always returns to right he goes home at the end of every year in between every year and spends time being the most unimportant little dust mite to the Dursleys that he possibly could be. And to be shut off, you know, cut off from the rest of the wizarding world has got to be tough. But think about how much more difficult it is for Harry right now. Possibly the most important thing since his birth has happened. Well, I guess not since his birth, but since his like since his first birthday, right? This is the second most important thing since he since he was born in the entire wizarding world. And it involves him directly, and he doesn't have any information on it. And nobody will talk to him about it. He's on radio silence with these folks for, 
how long, right? And he is desperate for any information. Consider being immersed in this world, this new world where suddenly you're important, or at the very least, you matter at all. You matter. And then not only are you separated from it, but you're totally cut off. Totally cut off. That has got to be a depth of loss that surpasses most of the experiences that we would have, right? Imagine, imagine, I guess, you know, like, imagine getting involved really deeply in reading about the world of Harry Potter, and then, you know, you get to, to book six or something, and all the books disappear off the face of the planet, and you can never get access to them again. You're cut off from that, and, and you can't get access to it again. This is what Harry is feeling, is this, this experience of finally belonging somewhere, finally having a place where he matters in some way, and he can't interact with it at all. That's where Harry is. I want you to watch how Harry's history kind of peeks through here and, and watch for some of the flaws that emerge in Harry. Because Harry does have flaws. Keep an eye on those. I'm going to go grab some water, and we're going to go into our next chapter. All right, I'm back and I'm ready to read. Let's do this thing. Chapter 6. The Noble and Most Ancient House of Black. Mrs. Weasley followed them upstairs, looking grim. I want you all to go straight to bed. No talking, she said as she reached the first landing. We've got a busy day tomorrow. I expect that Ginny's asleep, she added to Hermione. So try not to wake her up. <laughs> Asleep. Yeah, right, said Fred in an undertone, after Hermione bade them goodnight and they were climbing up to the next floor. If Ginny's not lying awake waiting for Hermione to tell her everything, then I'm a flubber worm. All right, Ron, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley on the second landing, pointing them into their bedroom. Off to bed with you. Night, Harry and Ron said to the twins. Sleep tight, said Fred, winking. Mrs. Weasley closed the door behind Harry with a sharp snap. The bedroom looked, if anything, even danker and gloomier than it had in the first light. The blank picture on the wall was now breathing very slowly and deeply, as though its invisible occupant was asleep. Harry put on his pajamas took off his glasses and climbed into his chilly bed while Ron threw owl treats up on top of the wardrobe to pacify Hedwig and Pigwidgeon, who were clattering around and rustling their wings restlessly. We can't let them out to hunt every night, Ron explained as he pulled on his maroon pajamas. Dumbledore doesn't want any owls swooping around the square, thinks it'll look suspicious if there are too many. Oh, yeah, I forgot. He crossed to the door and bolted it. What are you doing that for? Creature, said Ron as he turned off the light. First night I was here, it came wandering in at three in the morning. Trust me, you do not want to wake up and find him prowling around your room. Anyway, he got into his bed, settled down under the covers and turned to look at Harry in the darkness. Harry could see his outline in the moonlight filtering in through the grimy window. What do you reckon... Harry didn't need to ask what Ron meant. Well, they didn't tell us much that we couldn't have guessed, did they? He said, thinking of all that had been said downstairs. I mean, all they've really said is that the Order is trying to stop people from joining Vol- 
There was a sharp intake of breath from Ron. Demort, said Harry firmly. When are you going to start using his name? Sirius and Lupin do. Ron ignored this last comment. Ron ignored this last comment. Yeah, you're right, he said. We already knew everything they told us, from using the extendable ears. The only new bit was... <coughs> Ouch! Keep your voice down, Ron, or Mum will be back up here. You two just operated on my knees. Yeah, well, it's harder in the dark. Harry saw the blurred outlines of Fred and George leaping down from Ron's bed. There was a groan of bed springs, and Harry's mattress descended a few inches as George sat down near his feet. So, have you got there yet? said George eagerly. The weapon that Sirius mentioned, said Harry. Let's slip, more like, said Fred with relish, now sitting next to Ron. We didn't hear about that on the old extendables, did we? What do you reckon it is? said Harry. Couldn't be anything, said Fred. But there can't be anything worse than the Avada Kedavra curse, can there? said Ron. What's worse than death? Maybe it's something that can kill loads of people at once, suggested George. Maybe it's some particularly painful way of killing people, said Ron fearfully. He's got the Cruciatus curse for causing pain, said Harry. He doesn't need anything more efficient than that. There was a pause, and Harry knew that the others, like him, were wondering what horrors this weapon could perpetrate. So, who do you think has got it now? asked George. I hope it's our side, said Ron, sounding slightly nervous. If it is, Dumbledore's probably keeping it, said Fred. Where? said Ron quickly. Hogwarts. But it is, said George. That's where he hid the sorcerer's stone. A weapon's got to be a lot bigger than the stone, though, said Ron. Not necessarily. Yeah, size is no guarantee of power, said George. Look at Jenny. What do you mean? said Harry. You've never been on the receiving end of one of her bat bogey hexes, have you? Shh, said Fred, half rising from the bed. Listen. They fell silent. Footsteps were coming down the stairs. Mum, said George, and without further ado, there was a loud crack, and Harry felt the weight vanish from the end of his bed. A few seconds later, 
They heard the floorboard creak outside their door. Mrs. Weasley was plainly listening to check whether or not they were talking. Hedwig and Pigwidgeon hooted dolefully. The floorboard creaked again, and they heard her heading upstairs to check on Fred and George. She doesn't trust us at all, you know, said Ron regretfully. Harry was sure he would not be able to fall asleep. The evening had been so packed with things to think about that he fully expected to lie awake for hours mulling it over. He wanted to continue talking to Ron, but Mrs. Weasley was now creaking back downstairs again, and once she had gone, he distinctly heard others making their way upstairs. In fact, many-legged creatures were cantering softly up and down outside the bedroom door. And Hagrid, the Care of Magical Creatures teacher, was saying, They're beauties, aren't they, Harry? We'll be studying weapons this term. And Harry saw the creatures had cannons for heads and were wheeling to face him. He ducked. The next thing he knew, he was curled into a warm ball under his bedclothes, and George's loud voice was filling the room. Mum says, get up. Breakfast is in the kitchen, and then she needs you in the drawing room. There are loads more doxies than she thought, and she's found a nest of dead puffskins under the sofa. Half an hour later, Harry and Ron, who had dressed and breakfasted quickly, entered the drawing room, a high, high-ceilinged room on the first floor with olive green walls covered in dirty tapestries. The carpet exhaled little clouds of dust every time someone put their foot on it, and the long, moss-green velvet curtains were buzzing as though swarming with invisible bees. It was around these that Mrs. Weasley, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, and George were grouped, all looking rather peculiar as they each tied a cloth over their mouth and nose. Each of them was also holding a large bottle of black liquid with a nozzle at the end. Cover your faces and take a spray, Mrs. Weasley said to Harry and Ron the moment she saw them, pointing to two more bottles of black liquid standing on a spindle-legged table. It's doxyside. Never seen an infestation this bad. What that house elf has been doing for the last ten years... Hermione's face was half concealed by a tea towel, but Harry distinctly saw her throw a reproachful look at Mrs. Weasley. Creature is really old. He probably couldn't manage. You'd be surprised what Creature can manage when he wants to, Hermione, said Sirius, who had just entered the room carrying a blood-stained bag of what appeared to be dead rats. I've just been feeding Buckbeak, he added, in response to Harry's inquiring look. I keep him upstairs in my mother's bedroom. Anyway, this writing desk. He dropped the bag of rats into an armchair and then bent over to examine the locked cabinet, which Harry now noticed for the first time was shaking slightly. Uh, Molly, I'm pretty sure this is a boggart, said Sirius, peering through the eye hole. But perhaps we ought to let Matt and I have a shifty at it before we let it out. Knowing my mother... It could be something much worse. What are you are, Sirius? said Mrs. Weasley. They were both speaking in carefully light, polite tones that told Harry quite plainly that neither had forgotten their disagreement of the night before. A loud, clanging bell sounded from downstairs, followed at once by the cacophony of screams and wails that had been triggered the previous night by Tonks knocking over the umbrella stand. I keep telling him not to ring the doorbell said Sirius exasperatedly, hurrying out of the room. They heard him thundering down the stairs as Mrs. Black's screeches echoed up through the house once more. 
Stains of dishonor, filthy half-breeds, blood traitors, children of filth! Close the door, please, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley. Harry took as much time as he dared to close the drawing-room door. He wanted to listen to what was going on downstairs. Sirius had obviously managed to shut the curtains over his mother's portrait because she had stopped screaming. He heard Sirius walking down the hall and then clattering the chain on the front door, and in a deep voice, he recognized Kingsley Shacklebolt, saying, Istia has just relieved me, so she's got Moody's cloak right now. I thought I'd leave a report for Dumbledore. Feeling Mrs. Weasley's eyes on the back of his head, Harry regretfully closed the drawing-room door and rejoined the Doxy party. Mrs. Weasley was bending over to check the page on Doxies in Gilderoy Lockhart's Guide to Household Pests, which was lying open on the sofa. Right, you lot. You need to be careful because Doxies bite and the teeth are poisonous. I've got a bottle of antidote here, but I'd rather that nobody needed it. She straightened up, positioning herself squarely in front of the curtains and beckoning them all forward. When I say the word, start spraying immediately, she said. They'll come flying out at us, I expect, but it says on the sprays that one good squirt will paralyse them. When they're immobilised, just throw them in this bucket. She stepped carefully out of their line of fire and raised her own spray. All right. Squirt. Harry had been spraying only a few seconds when a fully grown doxy came soaring out of a fold in the material. Shiny, beetle-like wings whirring. Tiny, needle-sharp teeth bared, its fairy-like body covered with thick black hair and its four tiny fists clenched with fury. Harry caught it full in the face with a blast of doxyside. It froze in midair and fell with a surprisingly loud hunk on the floor with the worn carpet below. Harry picked it up and threw it into the bucket. "'Fred, what are you doing?' Mrs. Weasley said sharply. "'Spray it at once and throw it away!' Harry looked round. Fred was holding the struggling doxy between his forefinger and thumb. Righto, Fred said brightly, spraying the doxy quickly in the face so that it fainted. But the moment Mrs. Weasley's back was turned, he pocketed it with a wink. We want to experiment with doxy venom for our skiving snack boxes, George told Harry under his breath. Deftly spraying two doxies at once, as they soared straight for his nose, Harry moved closer to George and muttered under his breath, What are skiving snack boxes? It's a range of sweets to make you ill, George whispered, keeping a wary eye on Mrs. Weasley's back. Not seriously ill, mind, just ill enough to get you out of a class when you feel like it. Fred and I have been developing it this summer. They're double-ended, colour-coded chews. If you eat the orange half of a puking pastille, you throw up. The moment you've rushed out to the lessons for the hospital wing, you swallow the purple half. Which restores you to full fitness, enabling you to pursue the leisure activity of your own choice during an hour that would otherwise have been devoted to unprofitable boredom. That's what we're putting in the adverts anyway, whispered Fred, who had edged out of Mrs. Weasley's line of vision and was now sweeping a few stray doxies from the floor and adding them to his pocket. But they still need a bit of work. At the moment, our testers are having a bit of trouble stopping puking long enough to swallow the purple end. Testers? Us, said Fred. We take it in turns. George did the fainting fancies. We both tried the nosebleed nougat. 
<laughs> Mum thought we'd been dueling. The joke shop's still on, then, Harry muttered, pretending to be adjusting the nozzle on his spray. Well, we haven't had a chance to get premises yet, said Fred, dropping his voice even lower as Mrs. Weasley mopped her brow with her scarf before returning to the attack. So, we're running it as a mail-order service at the moment. We've put advertisements in the Daily Profit last week. All thanks to you, mate, said George. But don't worry, Mum hasn't got a clue. She won't read the Daily Prophet anymore, because it keeps telling lies about you and Dumbledore. Harry grinned. He had forced the Weasley twins to take a thousand galleons of prize money that he had won in the Triwizard Tournament to help them to realize their ambition to open a joke shop. But he was still glad to know that his part in furthering their plans was unknown to Mrs. Weasley. She did not think running a joke shop was a suitable career for two of her sons. The de-doxing of the curtains took most of the morning. It was past midday when Mrs. Weasley finally removed her protective scarf, sank into a sagging armchair, and sprang up again with a cry of disgust, having sat on a bag of dead rats. The curtains were no longer buzzing. They hung limp and damp from the intensive spraying. At the foot of them, unconscious doxies lay crammed in the bucket beside a bowl of their black eggs, which Crookshanks was now sniffing and Fred and George were shooting covetous looks. I think we'll tackle those after lunch. Mrs. Weasley pointed at the dusty, glass-fronted cabinet standing on either side of the mantelpiece. They were crammed with an odd assortment of objects, a selection of rusty daggers, claws, a coiled snakeskin, a number of tarnished silver boxes inscribed with languages that Harry could not understand, and, least pleasant of all, an ornate crystal bottle with a large opal set into the stopper, full of what Harry was quite sure was blood. The clanging doorbell rang again. Everyone looked at Mrs. Weasley. Stay here, she said firmly, snatching up the bag of rats as Mrs. Black's screeches started up again from down below. I'll bring up some sandwiches. She left the room, closing the door carefully behind her. At once, everyone dashed over to the window to look down on the doorstep. They could see the top of an unkempt ginger head and a stack of precariously placed cauldrons. Mandangus, said Hermione. What's he brought all those cauldrons for? Probably looking for a safe place to keep them, said Harry. Isn't that what he was doing the night that he was supposed to be tailing me? Picking up dodgy cauldrons. Yeah, you're right, said Fred as the front door opened. Mandungus heaved his cauldrons through it and disappeared from view. Oh, blimey. Mum won't like that. He and George crossed to the door and stood beside it, listening closely. Mrs. Black's screaming had stopped. Mundungus is talking to Sirius and Kingsley, Fred muttered, frowning with concentration. I can't hear properly. You think we can risk the extendable ears? Might be worth it, said George. I could sneak upstairs and get a pair. But at that precise moment, an explosion of sound from downstairs rendered extendable ears quite unnecessary. All of them could hear exactly what Mrs. Weasley was shouting at the top of her voice. We are not running an eye out for stolen goods. I love hearing Mum shouting at someone else, said Fred, with a satisfied smile on his face as he opened the door an inch or so to allow Mrs. Weasley's voice to permeate the room better. I make such a nice change of things. 
completely irresponsible, as if we haven't got enough to worry about without you dragging stolen cauldrons into the house. The idiots are letting her get in stride, said George, shaking his head. It's good to head her off early, otherwise she builds up a head of steam and goes on for hours. She's been dying to have a go at Mondongus ever since he sneaked off when he was supposed to be following you, Harry. And there goes Sirius's mum again. Mrs. Weasley's voice was lost amid fresh shrieks and screams from the portrait in the hall. George made to shut the door to drown the noise, but before he could do so, a house elf edged into the room. Except for the filthy rag tied like a loincloth around its middle, it was completely naked. It looked very old. Its skin seemed to be several times too big for it, and though it was bald like all house elves, there was a quantity of white hair growing out of its large bat-like ears. Its eyes were a bloodshot and watery gray, and its fleshy nose was large and rather snout-like. The elf took absolutely no notice of Harry and the rest. Acting as though it had not seen them, it shuffled hunchbacked, slowly and doggedly, toward the far end of the room all while muttering under its breath in a hoarse, deep voice like a bullfrog's. Smells like a drain and a criminal to boot, but she's no better, nasty old blood traitor with her brats, messing up my mistress's house, oh my poor mistress, if she knew, if she knew the scum they let into her house, what would she say to old creature? Oh, the shame of it, mudbloods and werewolves and traitors and thieves, poor old creature, what can he do? Hello, creature, said Fred very loudly, closing the door with a snap. The house-elf froze in his tracks, stopped muttering, and gave a very pronounced and very unconvincing start of surprise. Creature did not see the young master, he said, turning around and bowing to Fred. Still facing the carpet, he added, perfectly audibly, Nasty little brat of a blood traitor it is. Sorry, said George, didn't catch that last bit. Creature said nothing, said the elf, and with a second bow to George, added in a clear undertone, And there's its twin, unnatural little beasts they are. Harry didn't know whether to laugh or not. The elf straightened up, eyeing them all malevolently, and apparently convinced that they could not hear him, he continued to mutter, And there is the mudblood, standing there as bold as brass. Oh, if my headmistress knew, oh, how she would cry. And here's a new boy. Creature doesn't know his name. What's he doing here? Creature doesn't know. This is Harry, Creature, said Hermione tentatively. Harry Potter. Creature's pale eyes widened, and he muttered faster and more furiously than ever. The mudblood is talking to Creature as though she is my friend. If Creature's mistress saw him in such company, oh, what would she say? Don't call her a mudblood, said Ron and Ginny together, very angrily. It doesn't matter, Hermione whispered. He's not in his right mind. He doesn't know what he's... Don't kid yourself, Hermione. He knows exactly what he's saying, said Fred, eyeing Creature with great dislike. 
creature was still muttering, his eyes on Harry. Is it true? Is it Harry Potter? Creature can see the scar. It must be true. That's the boy who stopped the Dark Lord. Creature wonders how he did it. Don't we all, Creature? said Fred. What do you want anyway? George asked. Creature's eyes darted toward George. Creature is cleaning, he said evasively. A likely story, said a voice behind Harry. Sirius had come back, and he was glowering at the elf from the doorway. The noise in the hall had abated. Perhaps Mrs. Weasley and Mundungus had removed their argument to the kitchen. At the sight of Sirius, Creature flung himself into a ridiculously low bow that flattened his snout-like nose to the floor. Stand up straight, said Sirius impatiently. Now what are you up to? Creature is cleaning the elf repeated. Creature lives to serve the noble house of black. But it's getting blacker every day. It's filthy, said Sirius. Master always did like his little joke, said Creature, bowing again and continuing in an undertone. Master was a very ungrateful swine who broke his mother's heart. My mother didn't have a heart, Creature, snapped Sirius. She kept herself alive out of pure spite. Creature bowed again as he spoke. Whatever Master says, he muttered furiously. Master is not fit to wipe slime from his mother's boots. Oh, my poor mistress, oh, what would she say if she saw Creature serving him? How she hated him. What a disappointment he was. I asked you what you were up to, said Sirius coldly. Every time you show up pretending to be cleaning, you sneak something off to your room so we can't throw it out. Creature would never move anything from its proper place in Master's house, said the elf, then muttering very fast said, Mistress would never forgive Creature if the tapestry was thrown out. Seven centuries it's been in the family. Creature must save it. Creature will not let Master and the blood traitors and the brats destroy it. Yeah, I thought it might be that, said Sirius, casting a disdainful look at the opposite wall. She'll have put another permanent sticking charm on the back of it, I don't doubt, but if I can get rid of it, I certainly will. Now go away, Creature. It seemed that Creature did not dare disobey a direct order. Nevertheless, the look he gave Sirius as he shuffled past him was one of deepest loathing, and he muttered all the way out of the room. Comes back from Azkaban, ordering Creature around. Oh, my poor mistress, what would she say now if she saw the house with the scum living in it, her treasures thrown out? She swore he was no son of hers and he's back. They say he's a murderer, too. Keep muttering and I will be a murderer, said Sirius irritably as he slammed the door shut on the elf. Sirius, he's not right in the head, Hermione pleaded. I don't think he realizes that we can hear him. He's been alone too long, said Sirius, taking mad orders from my mother's portrait and talking to himself, but he's always been a foul little. If you just set him free, said Hermione hopefully, maybe. We can't set him free. He knows too much about the order, said Sirius curtly. And anyway, the shock would kill him. You suggest to him that he leaves this house and see how he takes it. 
Sirius walked across the room to where the tapestry creature had been trying to protect hung the length of the wall. Harry and the others followed. The tapestry looked immensely old. It was faded and looked as though doxies had gnawed it in places. Nevertheless, the golden thread with which was embroidered still glinted brightly enough to show them a sprawling family tree, dating back, as far as Harry could tell, to the Middle Ages. Large words at the very top of the tapestry read, The Noble and Most Ancient House of Black. Toujours peu. You're not on here said Harry, after scanning the bottom of the tree closely. I used to be here. And Sirius pointed at a small, round, charred hole in the tapestry, rather like a cigarette burn. My sweet old mother blasted me off after I ran away from home. Creature's quite fond of muttering the story under his breath. You ran away from home? When I was about sixteen, said Sirius, I'd had enough. Where did you go? asked Harry, staring at him. Your dad's place, said Sirius. Your grandparents were really good about it. They sort of adopted me as a second son. Yeah, I, I camped out at your dad's on the school holidays, and when I was seventeen I got a place of my own. My uncle Alfard left me a decent bit of gold, He's been wiped off here, too. That's probably why. Anyway, after that, I looked after myself. I was always welcome at Mr. and Mrs. Potter's for Sunday lunch, though. But why did you... Leave? Sirius smiled bitterly and ran his fingers through his long, unkempt hair. Because I hated the whole lot of them. My parents and their pure-blood mania convinced that a, being a black made you practically royalty. My idiot brother, soft enough to believe them. That's him. Sirius jabbed a finger at the very bottom of the tree at the name Regulus Black. A date of death, some fifteen years previously, followed the date of birth. He was younger than me, said Sirius, and a much better son as I was constantly reminded. But he died, said Harry. Yeah, said Sirius. Stupid idiot. He joined the Death Eaters. You're kidding. Come on, Harry, haven't you seen enough of this house to tell what kind of wizards my family were? Said Sirius testily. Were, were your parents Death Eaters as well? No. No, but believe me, they thought Voldemort had the right idea. They were all for the purification of the wizarding race, getting rid of Muggleborns and having pure bloods in charge. They weren't alone, either. There were quite a few people, before Voldemort showed his true colors, who thought he had the right idea about things. They got cold feet when they saw what he was prepared to do to get power, though. I bet my parents thought Regulus was a right little hero for joining up with him at first. Was he killed by an aura? Harry asked tentatively. Oh, no, said Sirius. No, he was murdered by Voldemort. Or on Voldemort's orders, more likely. I doubt Regulus was ever important enough to be killed by Voldemort in person. 
From what I found out after he died, he got in so far and then panicked about what he was being asked to do and tried to back out. Well, you don't just hand in your resignation to Voldemort. It's a lifetime of service or death. Lunch, said Mrs. Weasley's voice. She was holding her wand high in front of her, balancing a huge tray loaded with sandwiches and cake on its tip. She was very red in the face and still looked angry. The others moved over to her, eager for some food, but Harry remained with Sirius, who had bent closer to the tapestry. I haven't looked at this thing in years. There's Phineas Nigellus, my great-great-grandfather. See? Least popular headmaster Hogwarts ever had. And Arminta Meflua, cousin of my mother's, she tried to force through a ministry bill to make muggle hunting legal. And dear Aunt Eladora, she started the family tradition of beheading house elves when they got too old to carry tea trays. Of course, any time my family produced someone halfway decent, they were disowned. I see Tonks isn't on here. Maybe that's why Creature doesn't take orders from her. He's supposed to do whatever anyone in the family asks him. You and Tonks are related? Harry asked, surprised. Yeah. Her mother Andromeda was my favorite cousin, said Sirius, examining the tapestry closely. Uh, nope. Andromeda's not on here either. Look. He pointed to another small, round burn mark between two names, Bellatrix and Narcissa. Andromeda's sisters are still here because they made lovely, respectable, pure-blood marriages. But Andromeda married a muggle-born, Ted Tonks, so... Sirius mind blasting the tapestry with a wand and laughed sourly. Harry, however, did not laugh. He was too busy staring at the names to the right of Andromeda's burn mark. A double line of gold embroidery linked Narcissa Black with Lucius Malfoy, and a single vertical gold line from their names led to the name Draco. You're related to the Malfoys. The pureblood families are all interrelated, said Sirius. If you're only going to let your sons and daughters marry purebloods, the choice is very limited. There are hardly any of us left. Molly and I are cousins by marriage, and Arthur's something like my second cousin once removed. There's no point in looking for them on here. If ever a family was a bunch of blood traitors, it's the Weasleys. But Harry was now looking at the name to the left of Andromeda's burn, Bellatrix Black, which was connected by a double line to Rodolphus Lestrange. Lestrange, Harry said aloud, the name had stirred something in his memory. He knew it from somewhere, but for the moment he couldn't think where, though it gave him an odd, creeping sensation in the pit of his stomach. They're in Azkaban, said Sirius shortly. Perry looked at him curiously. Bellatrix and her husband Rodolphus came in with Barty Crouch Jr., said Sirius, in the same brusque voice. Rodolphus's brother Rabistan was there with him, too. Then Harry remembered. He had seen Bellatrix Lestrange inside Dumbledore's pensive, the strange device in which thoughts and memories could be stored. A tall, dark woman with heavy-lidded eyes, who had stood at her trial and proclaimed her continuing allegiance to the Dark Lord Voldemort, her pride when she had tried to find him after his downfall, and her conviction 
that she would one day be rewarded for her loyalty. You never said that she was your... Does it matter if she's my cousin? Snapped Sirius. As far as I'm concerned, they're not my family. She's certainly not my family. I haven't seen her since I was your age. Unless you kind a glimpse of her coming into Azkaban. You think I'm proud to have a relative like her? Sorry, said Harry quickly. I didn't mean... I, I was just surprised, that's all. It doesn't matter. Don't apologize, Sirius mumbled. He turned away from the tapestry, his hands deep in his pockets. I don't like being back here, he said, staring across the drawing room. Never thought I'd be stuck in this house again. Harry understood completely. He knew how he would feel when he had grown up and thought he was free of a place forever to return and live at number four Privet Drive. It's the ideal place for a headquarters, of course, Sirius said. My father put every security measure known to wizard kind on it when he lived here. It's unplottable, so muggles can never come to call, even if they ever wanted to. And now Dumbledore's added his protection as well, so it's hard to find a safer house anywhere. Dumbledore is secret keeper for the Order, you know. Nobody can find headquarters unless he tells them personally where it is. That note Moody showed you last night, that was from Dumbledore. Sirius gave a short, bark-like laugh. <laughs> if my parents could see the house being put to use like this now. Well, my mother's portrait should give you some idea. He scowled for a moment and then sighed. I wouldn't mind if I could just get out occasionally, do something useful. I've asked Dumbledore whether I could escort you to your hearing, as Snuffles, obviously, so I can give you a bit of moral support. What do you think? Harry felt as though his stomach had sunk through the dusty carpet. He had not thought about the hearing once since dinner the previous evening. In the excitement of being back with the people he liked best and hearing everything that was going on, it had completely flown his mind. At Sirius's words, however, a crushing sense of dread returned to him. He stared at Hermione and the Weasleys, all tucking into their sandwiches, and thought how he would feel if they went back to Hogwarts without him. Don't worry, Sirius said. And Harry looked up and realized that Sirius had been watching him. I'm sure that they'll clear you. There's definitely something in the international statute of secrecy about being allowed to use magic to save your own life. But if they do expel me, said Harry quietly, can I come back here and live with you? Sirius smiled sadly. We'll see. I would feel a lot better about the hearing if I knew that I didn't have to go back to the Dursleys, Harry pressed him. It must be bad if you prefer this place, said Sirius gloomily. Hurry up, you two, or there'll be no food left, Mrs. Weasley called. Sirius heaved another great sigh, cast a dark look at the tapestry, and then he and Harry went to join the others. Harry tried his best not to think about the hearing while they emptied the glass-fronted cabinets that afternoon. 
Fortunately for him, it was a job that required a lot of concentration, as many of the objects in there seemed very reluctant to leave their dusty shelves. Sirius sustained a bad bite from a silver snuff-box. Within seconds, his bitten hand had developed an unpleasant, crusty covering like a tough brown glove. "'It's okay,' he said, examining his hand with interest before tapping it lightly with his wand and restoring his skin to normal. "'Must be wart-cap powder in there.' He threw the box aside into the stack where they had been depositing the debris from the cabinets— Harry saw George wrap his own hand carefully in a cloth moments later and sneak the box into his already doxy-filled pocket. They found an unpleasant-looking silver instrument, something like a many-legged pair of tweezers, which scuttled up Harry's arm like a spider when he picked it up and attempted to puncture his skin. Sirius seized it and smashed it with a heavy book titled Nature's Nobility, A Wizarding Genealogy. There was a music box that emitted a faintly sinister, tinkling tune when wound, and they all found themselves becoming curiously weak and sleepy until Jenny had the sense to slam the lid shut. A heavy locket that none of them could open, a number of ancient seals, and in a dusty box in Order of Merlin First Class that had been awarded to Sirius's grandfather for services to the ministry. It means he gave them lots of gold, said Sirius contemptuously, throwing the metal into the rubbish sack. Several times, Creature sidled into the room and attempted to smuggle things away under his loincloth, muttering horrible curses every time they caught him at it. When Sirius wrestled a large golden ring bearing the Black family crest from his grip, Creature eventually burst into furious tears and left the room sobbing under his breath and calling Sirius names Harriet never heard before. It was my father's, said Sirius, throwing the ring into the sack. Creature owes and quite as devoted to him as to my mother, but I still caught him snogging a pair of my father's old trousers last week. Mrs. Weasley kept them all working very hard over the next few days. The drawing room took three days to decontaminate. Finally, the only undesirable things left in it were the tapestry of the Black family tree, which resisted all of their attempts to remove it from the wall, and the rattling writing desk. Moody had not yet dropped by the headquarters, so they could not be sure what was inside it. They moved from the drawing room to a dining room on the ground floor, where they found spiders as large as saucers lurking in the dresser. Ron left the room hurriedly to make a cup of tea and did not return for an hour and a half. The china, which bore the black crest and motto, was all thrown unceremoniously into a sack by Sirius. And the same fate met a set of old photographs in tarnished silver frames, all of whose occupants squealed shrilly as the glass coverings smashed. Snape might refer to their work as cleaning, but in Harry's opinion, what they were really doing was waging war on the house, which was putting up a very good fight, aided and abetted by Creature. The house elf kept appearing wherever they congregated, his muttering becoming more and more offensive as he attempted to remove anything he could from the rubbish sacks. Sirius went as far as to threaten him with clothes, but Creature fixed him with a watery stare and said, Creature must do as Master wishes before turning away and muttering very loudly, But Master will not turn Creature away. No, because Creature knows what they're up to. Oh, yes, he is plotting against the Dark Lord. Yes, with these mudblood and traitors and scum. Which Sirius, ignoring Hermione's protests, seized Creature by the back of his loincloth and threw him bodily from the room. 
The doorbell rang several times a day, which was the cue for Sirius's mother to start shrieking again and for Harry and the others to attempt to eavesdrop on the visitor, though they gleaned very little from the brief glimpses and snatches of conversation that they were able to sneak before Mrs. Weasley recalled them to their tasks. Snape flitted in and out of the house several times more, though to Harry's relief they never came face to face. Harry also caught sight of his transfiguration teacher, Professor McGonagall, looking very odd in a muggle dress and coat. She seemed too busy to linger. Sometimes, however, the visitors stayed to help. Tonks joined them for a memorable afternoon, in which they found a murderous old ghoul lurking in the upstairs toilet, and Lupin, who was staying in the house with Sirius, but who left it for long periods to do mysterious work for the Order, helped them to repair a grandfather clock that had developed an unpleasant habit of shooting heavy bolts at passers-by. Mundungus redeemed himself slightly in Mrs. Weasley's eyes by rescuing Ron from an ancient set of purple robes that had tried to strangle him when he had removed them from the wardrobe. Despite the fact that he was still sleeping badly, still having dreams about corridors and locked doors that made his scar prickle, Harry was managing to have fun for the first time all summer. As long as he was busy, he was happy. When the action abated, however... Whenever he dropped his guard or lay exhausted in bed watching blurred shadows moving across the ceiling, he thought of the looming ministry hearing. Fear jabbed at his insides like needles as he wondered what was going to happen to him if he was expelled. The idea was so terrible to him that he did not dare voice it aloud, not even to Ron and Hermione, who, though he often saw them whispering together and casting anxious looks in his direction, followed his lead in not mentioning it. Sometimes he could not prevent his imagination showing him a faceless ministry official who was snapping his wand in two and ordering him back to the Dursleys. But he would not go. He was determined on that. He would come back here to Grimald Place and live with Sirius. He felt as though a brick had dropped into his stomach when Mrs. Weasley turned to him during dinner on Wednesday evening and said quietly, I've ironed your best clothes for tomorrow morning, Harry, and I want you to wash your hair tonight. A good first impression can work wonders. Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, and Ginny all stopped talking and looked over at him. Harry nodded and tried to keep eating his chops, but his mouth had become so dry he could not chew. How am I getting there? He asked Mrs. Weasley, trying to sound unconcerned. Arthur is going to take you to work with him, said Mrs. Weasley gently. Mr. Weasley smiled encouragingly at Harry across the table. You can wait in my office until it's time for the hearing. Harry looked over at Sirius, but before he could ask the question, Mrs. Weasley had answered it. Professor Dumbledore doesn't think it's a good idea for Sirius to go with you, and I must say that I... Think he's quite right, said Sirius through clenched teeth. Mrs. Weasley pursed her lips. "'When did Dumbledore tell you that?' Harry asked, staring at Sirius. "'It came last night while you were in bed,' said Mr. Weasley. Sirius stabbed moodily at a potato with his fork. Harry lowered his own eyes to his plate. The thought that Dumbledore had been in the house on the eve of his hearing and not asked to see him made him feel, if possible, even worse.
And that is the end of our chapters for today. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. Uh, sorry for the delay on this. I hope you have not had to delay your listening for too long. This might have been one of the worst recordings I have ever had. This is going to be a beast to edit, so hopefully this is out in a timely fashion. Of course, I do apologize, but everyone, thank you very much for watching. Again, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and off in the future, we have renamed this whole show Flying Sidecar. Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories that we all love. Flying Sidecar is things like Harry Potter and Percy Jackson and the Olympians, as opposed to Vintage Sidecar, where we have read The Great Gatsby and Frankenstein and uh, Christmas Carol, and we are now reading The Hobbit. So, if you would like to know about that, go ahead and you can check out the link tree that I added up at the beginning. Once again, that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories that is the link to follow that's the link to share around if you think anyone would be interested in this if they like harry potter if they like percy jackson if they like um you know classic literature if they like discussion if they just like a community to talk about these things or if they just simply like something to fall asleep to that's a great link to share around and y'all thank you very much for your patience i will see you all very soon Bye bye